This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I think any law enforcement officer knows that in this line of work, you're going to be subjected to seeing things that ordinary citizens would cringe at. So it wasn't my first exposure to death or violence, but it was certainly my first exposure to seeing firsthand the effects of a death on the family and watching the investigation unfold over the years and seeing Brian lying on that ground and the pain in the Bertelli family's eyes is something I will never forget. April 9th, 2003 is a cold, rainy afternoon in Fauquier County, Virginia. Around 1.30 p.m., Carlo Bertelli stops by his home to pick up his 20-year-old stepson, Brian. They work together at a roofing company. And even though Brian has the day off, Carlo needs his help on one of his projects. He's tried a couple of times to reach Brian on his cell phone, but there's been no answer. When Carlo pulls into the driveway, everything appears normal. But when he opens the door, a wave of thick black smoke billows out. The house is on fire, and Carlo is afraid Brian is trapped inside. I'm Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, Deadly Intruders. Carlo and Christine Bertelli live in a rural area one hour west of Washington, D.C. Their house is nestled in the woods, barely visible from the main road or surrounding neighbors. Christine's sister Jody is 26 and has lived with the Bertelli since graduating from high school. 20-year-old Brian has only lived with his mother and stepfather for a little more than four years. Christine remembers the day that Brian moved in with them as the best day of her life. He was a sweetheart. He was really good-tempered, and he was thoughtful, and he would hang around with us as much as he could. He'd be playing video games or watching a movie, and and he's like, Mom, sit down here and watch me play this game. Or he would, you know, talk about the movie that he's watching. He was just such a good kid. Christine was only 16 years old when she had Brian, and he spent much of his childhood being raised by his grandparents. But in the 10th grade, Brian decided to move in with his mother and Carlo in Virginia. Him and Carlo were great together. He loved Carlo very, very much. We actually used to joke that if something would happen between Carlo and I to where we would separate, that Brian would choose to live with Carlo instead of me. That's how well they got along. In the summers when he wasn't in school, we wrestled around, we played basketball together, uh, we went fishing together. He loved to fish. I'd bought a little boat, and Brian was happy. He helped me fix the boat up and stuff. 
it was our thing. You know, if we had a weekend that I didn't have to work, me and Brian would do some bass fishing, and he couldn't wait to go out fishing. The morning of April 9th, 2003, begins like any other workday in the Bertelli home. Christine and Carlo wake up early and head for work before daybreak. I would usually leave to about four and a quarter after because uh, I tried to be at work by five. I told Brian he wouldn't have to go in today because I'm the one that sent out all the crews. So I knew he wouldn't be working that day. Of course, he, he said, uh, well, that's good because he could go back to bed. But I, I told him, I said, well, keep your phone on because later if I have to chase some leaks, I'll maybe get you to go with me. Christine leaves the house first, followed by Carlo. By 5.30 a.m., only Brian and Christine's sister Jody are still at home. Jody remembers last seeing Brian as he was heading out the door before she left for work. I remember I was in the laundry room of the house, and he walked by, and I'm like, where are you going? And he said, oh, I'm going to go rent a video game. And I was like, okay, wear your seatbelt. After Brian left to go rent his video game, I just got ready for work and left. I want to say probably about a quarter to 11. And I didn't see anything. Nothing didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I wish I could go back and just pay more attention to my surroundings. When Carlo gets to work, he's asked to take on a new project, a job that he could really use Brian's help with. So even though Brian has the day off, Carlo heads home around 1 p.m. to pick him up. I did try to call him several times. I wanted him to get on some work clothes and stuff like that. I was going to drive by and pick him up, but him not answering the phone, I just figured he was 20 years old. You know, it was nothing for him to play some video games and lay back in bed all day until you got him up. When I got home, I tried to unlock the doors that we always go through the garage and the back door, and I couldn't get them to open, and the key wouldn't go in, and I couldn't figure it out. And I went up the back steps to the upper deck that goes into our dining room area upstairs. That door opened. When I opened that door, that's when the smoke come rushing out and I knew there was a problem. Of course, I thought something happened to our fireplace. And the first thing that come to my mind that Brian might have been laying in bed and the smoke had got him. I tried to go through the house to find him. At the time, it didn't dawn on me that there was some stuff laying where it shouldn't have been. Stuff had been ransacked. But when I got to Brian's room, he wasn't there. I went downstairs hollering for him and looking, and the smoke was thick. You couldn't see. And then when it got real hard to breathe, I tried to make my way to the back door, and that's when I sort of tripped over Brian. He was laying in the hall right in the foyer there as you come in the back door. When I found him, he, he had some clothes and stuff piled on him, but I, I didn't realize what was going on. All I knew is I found him, and I was trying to drag him outside to get some air. When I got him to the door outside, that's when I noticed that he had been shot in the head. On his way to the house, Carlo had spoken with Christine and mentioned that Brian was not answering his phone, and she was concerned. I called Brian's phone. I remember saying, Brian, you know, give me a call back. You know how I worry. Carlo, Brian, they both knew that I worried when I couldn't get a hold of them. I think that 
comes from, I have a younger sister, Jessie, and she had got killed in a car accident when she was in high school. And ever since then, you know, if I can't get a hold of somebody when I know that they should be home or by their phone, I would worry constantly. So I knew when Carlo, his phone went straight to voicemail, I knew something was wrong. Christine's sister Jody hears about the fire and rushes home as fast as she can. Carlo was in horrible shape. He was hyperventilating and it was it was off because Carlo is like my dad because I've spent more than half my life with him and my sister and honestly the strongest man I've ever known and to see him reduced like that to just being destroyed at finding Brian like he did and his hands still had blood on him and he couldn't breathe that is something that will haunt me every day for the rest of my life the terrible news finally reaches Brian's mom, Christine, when family friends come by her office to drive her home. They don't tell her that Brian is dead, but somehow she knows. As soon as I seen them, and I just remember backing up until I hit a wall and just sliding down the wall and sitting on the floor and just crying and, and just saying, I can't go through this again. I can't go through this again. And so I knew when they come to drive me home that it was bad so i remember getting close to the house and and there's just cars you know just it looked like cars were parked in ditches and i just remember the person that drove me home pulling into our driveway carlo came and opened up the door where i was sitting and carlo just putting his head on my lap and crying One thing everybody likes to do is shop. Another thing everybody likes to do is save money. What if you were able to do both? Well, now you can with Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members earn cash back on everything that they buy. Rakuten is partnered with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not be saving while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Shop stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Bloomingdale's, Urban Outfitters, Blue Mercury. Chances are your favorite store is already there. Here's how it works. The stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via check or PayPal quarterly. You can maximize your savings by stacking cash back on top of other deals, like store sales and coupons. Rakuten has 17 million members who are already saving. Why not join them? Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up with Rakuten. I was at the sheriff's office, which is in Warrenton, Virginia, probably eight or nine miles from the Bertelli residence. And I recall captain at the time called us and said, sounds like you all have a house fire down south and potentially a body. Detective Jason Romero has only been a detective for a few short months, and this will be one of his first violent crime investigations. When we arrived, the fire department was still uh, putting out the fire. I think it was just smoldering at that point, so it took a little while before we actually had access to get in the house, but uh, my division commander at the time wanted me to come inside the house just briefly. 
to kind of get a, uh, a feel for what this looked like, as I had not really experienced something like that before. I do recall having walked in the garage and peered in through the basement and saw Brian on the ground, saw the damage that the fire caused, and I remember the, the sight and the smells like it was yesterday. I think every law enforcement officer walks away from their career with a couple of scars, things that just um, that left a mark in their memory. And certainly uh, seeing Brian lying on that ground and, and the pain in the Bertelli family's eyes is something I will never forget. Investigators immediately see that the house has been ransacked and assume Brian interrupted a burglary when he returned from the video store. As best we can tell, it, it looks as though Brian walked into the house not knowing what to expect. Um, there was likely a vehicle in the driveway that Brian may or may not have recognized. And uh, being an inquisitive young man, walked in the house to see what was going on and never really made it past the entranceway into the house from the garage. It looks like he walked in the house and was confronted by whomever was in there committing the burglary and he was shot and killed right there. The investigators determined that the fire originated on Brian's body itself. They believe the assailants shot and killed Brian, then threw clothing they found in the house over his body, doused him with gasoline from the garage, and ignited it. The way the fire department explained it to me, the fire got hot real fast and it burned up all the oxygen in the house, burnt some of the rafters, doors, plus it had busted the pipes downstairs and uh, the water and no air helped put the fire out. It appears as though the house was ultimately sealed up when the fire was lit, which caused it to kind of snuff out the fire, but it did burn for a period of time. And I think had the doors been left open and the oxygen provided to the fire, it probably would have engulfed the entire house, but it was pretty well limited to the basement area where Brian was ultimately found. Investigators know that Carlo and Christine are devastated by the loss of Brian but they need help to determine what might be missing from the home. When they walked me through the house, I noticed like in all the other rooms, the mattresses have been turned over, the drawers have been stripped. I mean, they ripped all the clothes out of the closets. It was just stuff everywhere. They showed me where like a VCR where they had unhooked it from the television, had it laying on the chair. And they asked me like where my guns were. And that's basically when we found out what was really taken that I could remember at the time. He took all my clothes, all my guns, ammunition that I had. That stuff had been ransacked. Carlo was a gun collector. Carlo was an avid hunter. And as such, he had dozens of guns. He kept them in a gun room, if you will, which was in the lower level of the residence. One would not think you would need to necessarily secure them from uh, someone breaking in your house. But unfortunately, these were readily at the disposal of someone who was apparently looking throughout the house to steal something, and they found this cache of guns, and there were dozens of guns that were stolen. There were no signs of forced entry, and it kind of remains a mystery as how they got in the house. Keeping in mind, uh, it was not unusual for people to leave their houses unlocked in this part of Walker County, as no one ever thought that things like this would happen. We have always felt that just based on the volume of stuff that was taken from the house, that it was likely more than one person. There were so many guns taken and other things that were near the guns, like clothing and video games were missing, hunting equipment like knives, handbags, 
it took some time to load that stuff up. I would think it would be difficult to carry this volume of stuff in a, a passenger car. I, it was more likely a, a pickup truck or a, an SUV of some sort that would have had to carry the people and all of the stolen items out of that house. We do know that the perpetrators used a gun that was brought to the residence to kill Brian. It was not one that they found from inside the residence. We were able to recover shell casings from within the residence, any opportunity to collect DNA or latent fingerprints from the area around Brian or the guns was well destroyed by the fire. Investigators create a timeline for the burglary by retracing the steps of the Bertelli family that morning. They want to know what time the killers broke into the house and how long they were there. Based on the family's recollection, Chrissy, Brian's mother left for work around four in the morning, followed by Carlo leaving for work right around five o'clock. Brian's aunt uh, said around 10.45 that Brian left the house to go to a blockbuster video in Warrenton and that she subsequently left the house around 10.55 in the morning. We did see Brian on video surveillance at the blockbuster and we know he left blockbuster around 11.01, heading presumably back home. We know that the fire appears to have stopped the clocks in the house around 11.30. So that's a pretty narrow window of opportunity. But, you know, a half an hour is a, is a long time to gather things and look through the house. Brian eventually came back to the house somewhere in that vicinity and ultimately met his demise. When detectives interview Jody, they learn that there were some mysterious calls made to the house that morning. The caller ID said it, that it was a 788 number, which was our area. One of them was about 20 to 10, and the other one was, a, I want to say, about 20 to 11, and I ended up answering them both, and they were hang-up calls. Looking through the phone records, police see three calls from the same number that morning. First at 6.58 a.m., next at 9.17 a.m., and again at 10.40 a.m. They all came from a payphone at a nearby general store. Our theory is that uh, these phone calls were made to the residents and uh, was essentially a form of casing the residents for the burglary. The payphone located at the Elk Run store, which is a four-way intersection about 1.4 miles away from Brian's house, was something that all the family members would pass on their way to work and Brian on the way to Blockbuster. So we can only guess that whomever was making those hang-up phone calls was able to observe all these vehicles passing by where they were waiting until they knew that the house was empty. I was uh, told to process the payphone for fingerprints. I did, and we did recover one what appeared to be a thumbprint off of the handset of the phone. Um, that fingerprint was submitted to a national database and remains in that national database should someone be arrested that was a contributor to that fingerprint, we would get a notification, but that hasn't happened yet. Carlo tries to imagine what Brian might have seen that morning when he returned home after renting the videos. Our driveway, when it comes down, it goes to the left of our house, and there's a circle there, but then the driveway part is sort of right by the garage behind the house. Coming down the driveway, Brian wouldn't have seen the vehicle, but as he come around the circle, he would have seen a vehicle there. He had to walk right beside the vehicle, whatever was there. And for the love of God, I can't figure out why he would walk into that house unless it was a, a white pickup truck 
that sort of looked like one of our crew trucks. And he might have thought I was in it and had came home. And that's one of my guesses. It could have been someone that he might have thought he knew or he thought he recognized the vehicle. I don't think he would go in to confront somebody. I just, I don't know. I I really don't know. Brian was murdered the moment he walked in the door. The videotapes that he had rented were still in his hand. Did he surprise the burglars when he entered the house? Or did they see Brian's car pull up and ambush him when he walked through the door? This person has to be evil, you know? They have to be evil. In our house, there is five doors that you can go into, into our house. They could have went out any of those other doors, but they chose not to. They chose to stay there and shoot him. And not just shoot him, they they meant to kill him. It's hard for me to grasp the type of person that could be so evil as to take another person's life. I just, I don't understand that. We don't know why Brian was ultimately killed. There's a couple scenarios, you know, obviously no one wants to get caught while they're committing a crime. And, you know, the best way to minimize the likelihood that you're going to be caught is by eliminating the witnesses to your crime. And the other possibility is that Brian may have known who burglarized his house and whomever was was in there couldn't risk, uh, whether it be the shame of having been caught by their friend or by someone who knew them or, again, just self-preservation and not wanting to uh, go to jail. So anything and everything is a possibility in terms of who may have been in that house. And we focus so much of our attention on the Bertelli family and their web of friends and people they worked with and people they knew because there was always the potential that Brian may have known who was in that hallway waiting for him. Detective Romero makes a list of friends of the Bertelli family, paying close attention to anyone who might have known about Carlo's extensive gun collection. There have been people of interest in this investigation. We followed the leads as best we could. We know that the Bertellis were very open to helping people, helping Brian's friends, allowing people to have a place to stay when they needed it. It's always been something of concern to us that perhaps someone took advantage of that. Brian had a friend that stayed with us for a while. He's had a rough life. I brought him up to stay with us, got him a job. And he was doing pretty good for a while, but I guess, you know, he got off the beaten path. He wouldn't go to work. He wasn't showing up for work. I don't know how I would say it. I, I, I let him know that as long as he was staying with me, there were some rules. He didn't want to abide by them rules, so he left. Brian's friend, who stayed with the family for several months before the break-in, would have known about Carlo's gun collection. Investigators learned that he called Brian the night before the robbery to say he might be stopping by the next day. So he talked to him, and uh, I asked him what he wanted. He says, oh, he says he might come up tomorrow and get the rest of his stuff out of the house because he still had some clothes and stuff there. But uh, Brian said, but he probably ain't coming. So we didn't think no more about it. He did come to the funeral, and the minute he came in there, the police had grabbed him. 
because they wanted to talk to him because of the phone call the night before and stuff. And for some reason, he says he didn't make that phone call, but Chrissy did talk to him, handed the phone to Brian outside, so I, I know he did call. And why he says he didn't, I don't know. I know he passed the polygraph a, a couple times. I believe he did have an alibi. I'm thinking it was someone that maybe had been after him or he owed somebody some money. He had mentioned what I had at my house. Could he have had some involvement or someone could have been mad at him or after him? That's a possibility. But truthfully, I do not think he would do anything in this world to hurt Brian. I just don't believe that. Just a few months after the robbery and murder at the Bertelli home, another house in the neighborhood is targeted, and the details of this break-in are disturbingly similar. There's a house across from us. They had the same hang-up call, and they got robbed. We're guessing that the people had used the same M.O. They did get a couple gums, but he didn't have a lot. I couldn't believe these people were this brazen because uh, the police had roadblocks set up on the roads at different times, and... There was canvas in the area. It was hard, hard to believe that people were doing that. Roughly five months after Brian was killed, that house was burglarized and a number of firearms were taken. And then there were burglaries and a couple burglaries in the same area around October of 2003. Interestingly, of those burglaries that I mentioned, at least one, if not multiple firearms have turned up having been recovered in Washington, D.C. or Baltimore, which isn't too far away from us. It's generally where stolen firearms from our neck of the woods end up having been traded for drugs. In this particular case, 20 years later, not a single gun that was stolen from the house has ever been recovered. That is extremely unusual for things that were stolen out of a house to have never surfaced, especially 20 years later. My theory is that Brian was an unintended victim of a burglary, and you know, it ups the seriousness of a crime when you can now attach a, a body to the theft of these guns. So whomever took them probably did their part to get rid of them permanently uh, or hid them very, very well so that they would never be discovered and ultimately tied back to whoever killed Brian. Police eventually arrest two men who confessed to dozens of burglaries in the area but they deny any involvement in the Bertelli robbery or in Brian's murder. The duo that was arrested for a number of these burglaries, one of which had a rock-solid alibi the day of Brian's death, so we were fairly confident that had they committed all of the other burglaries together, this would have been the lone burglary they would have done individually, and it just didn't make sense. We were always hopeful that it would lead us back to Brian somehow, some way. It just it never panned out. The police took them around. They showed them all the places they robbed when they got caught. And probably the only good thing that out of Brian's case, the police said they had solved more crimes in a short period of time where people were getting caught for stuff and they were confessing to stuff that the police didn't even know about because they wanted to make sure they didn't get implicated as the person that committed that murder. Someone knows what happened to Brian that day, and if they were brave enough to come forward and tell law enforcement, that'll be the key to close this investigation. Uh, it's unusual that 20 years would pass and not a word be spoken of such a horrific crime that was committed. We make it a regular part of any arrest we make to ask the perpetrator if they are aware or have knowledge of any crimes of significance in Fauquier County. And Brian's murder is one of the most prevalent because it's the it's kind of the one that has the most unanswered questions and 
it's our feeling that at least one person knows who murdered Brian and we're not going to rest until we know exactly why Brian died 18 years ago. Brian's senseless and tragic death has had a lasting impact on the Brutelli family. We've all dealt with anxiety and depression since this because it has a massive effect on your life. On the positive side, if there's any any positive takeaway, we are constantly telling each other that we love each other. Because you never know when that last time is that you're going to get a chance to say that to somebody that you love in your family, you know? My sister and I are so much closer, and, you know, we used to squabble a lot, but we are so much closer now than we used to be. After Brian, I basically quit fishing. I didn't fish for years. Uh, I ended up uh, giving mine and Brian's boat away. Uh, I I miss him a lot. I, I really regret not having him around to do the things uh, with my daughter and her grandkids now that, and he would have probably had kids by now, <laughs> I'm sure. I think he's up there and I, I hope that uh, uh, he's looking down on us and uh, understands we're trying to do our best. I, I would like to hit the lotteries <laughs> so I could raise the reward a lot, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would hope he's looking down on us knowing we're doing the best we can and we still love him. Missing. In 2004, with their cherished son gone and their house nearly destroyed by fire, Carlo and Christine have a decision to make. Do they rebuild or move away and try to put the painful memories behind them? The thought about uh, leaving the house actually did not cross my mind at all. From the time that it happened, I I knew. I'm like, no, you know, I want to move back into the house because that's where my memories of Brian are. And that's where I feel closer to Brian. So I know a lot of people probably think that it's strange, but... Not me. You just never, ever feel complete. And all your friends and family and all the love that they give, it just will never feel that emptiness that you feel in your soul, actually. They have taken the most precious thing in the world away from me. If you have any information about the murder of Brian Mace, please contact the Fauquier County Sheriff's Office at 540-422-8650 or submit a tip at unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. I could feel something in my gut, something was wrong, but I wasn't there at the time to see it. I can tell through our conversations that she was declining. I don't know what else I could have done. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Muir Productions and Cadence 13. It is executive produced by Terry Dunmuir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Christine Lenig, Courtney Ennis, Paige Heimson, and Paul Yates. The story producer for this episode was Ann Toller, and it was edited by Ryan Dan. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil, Andy Jaskowitz, and Bill Schultz. Production support by Sean Cherry and Ian Mont. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. Publicity by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. 
The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to episode 25 of Unsolved Mysteries. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.